0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Welcome, everyone, and thanks for coming out to our uh, fifth and final Carbon Smackdown. Uh, our first four events revealed how lab are developing wind turbines and smart windows and other ways to reduce carbon emissions. Um, and today's event and talk will kind of bring it all together. Uh, It discusses a really interesting and powerful tool called computer visualization, which is a way that scientists are are using to accelerate uh, clean energy technology, such as the ones you've seen before, as well as a better understanding of of the Earth's climate in general. Um, Our guide or hero today is uh, Juan Meza. He's the uh, department head and senior scientist for the high-performance computing research department in the lab's computational research division. Um, Among his many roles here at the lab, he oversees work in computer science and future technologies, uh, scientific data management, visualization, and numerical algorithm. Uh, Please join me in welcoming Juan.
0: Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here and to give this talk, Uh, especially uh, after all the uh, other four talks. It's uh, it's nice to kind of try to wrap things up in, in a way. Uh, So, a slight change. I'll be talking about more than just visualization today. Uh, I'll be talking about computational sciences, and I'll even throw in some math and and one or two slides with equations, so uh, be prepared for that. I always like to warn the audience about that when they come up. All right. so what is computational sciences? Well, there's a lot of uh, discussion about what kinds of things we're doing within computing sciences, so what I thought I would do is talk a little bit about the modeling and simulation aspects, Uh, Another question that comes up a lot is, how accurate are these models? We we see a lot of predictions being made, uh, uh, global climate change, uh, other types of uh, phenomena that we're trying to to predict. And it's a very natural question to ask, well, how how sure are we about those answers? And then one which is, I think, overriding, especially these days, is how can computing help in solving our energy problems, which is one of the uh, aspects that this lab in particular is looking at very much these days. So computational sciences. So a long time ago, or, or as my, my children like to, to tell me, it's when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was back in school. Uh, there were two, two fields of science. There were theory and, and experiments. Uh, and you either went into a lab and you uh, hooked up something and some apparatus or, or whatever, uh, and you measured something, or you were, uh, say, more like a mathematician, perhaps, and you went into the, your room with a pencil and paper and you did theory. And then with the advent of computers... What happened was is that these two fields started to kind of merge into a new field which is called computational science. basically modeling and simulation. And what I want to do is talk a little bit about how that can help our uh, ability to be able to help with the energy problem. Okay, so I'd like to make this uh, this uh, comparison here. If you go back to the, the, the dawn of this lab, uh, Lawrence uh, was made famous by uh, developing this little device called a cyclotron which was about four and a half inches in diameter took them about a year, and I think it was something like $50,000, or maybe it was $15,000, to build. Uh, since that time in 1930, uh, we now have these experimental devices like the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which is 27 kilometers in circumference, and is estimated to cost on the order of about $4 billion. So that's about a 75,000-fold increase, say, in size, you could also measure it in terms of the energy of this device versus that one, which is closer to about hundred million. So there's been great strides in the experimental devices. But at the same time, something else happened. Shortly afterwards, say around 1945 or 50, a computer came along. And this came out of a project uh, called ENIAC, which I'll talk about a little bit uh, later. And it had the whopping capacity of 400 operations per second. So that's 400 multiplications, if you will. So we don't have quite 400 people in the audience here, but if we did, and if I asked you all to multiply once, then we would have 400 operations, and that would be the equivalent of doing that computer right there. So from 1950 then to our time frame, we have another uh, set of advances, and does anybody recognize this little chip over here? Probably only the people in the computer science community. But the question I'd like to ask is, this is is the basis for a supercomputer, and what I would then ask you is, how many of you guys have a supercomputer in your house? Okay, two, two? Three? almost all of you should have answered because if you have, do you have an Xbox 360 at home, sir? There you go. That's a, uh, one of the chips, or actually a PlayStation 3. So almost everybody here, if you have kids, or even if you don't you, you don't, you can buy one if you don't have kids, if you have a PlayStation 3, you have one of these, and it has something on the order of 200 billion operations per second, and instead of costing $4 billion, it's something closer to $400. Of course, you also get a DVD player for free and a couple of games. So, <clears throat> Okay, so, so what this has done is that it has allowed scientists to be able to then completely rethink the way they would do science. And so now we're at a crossroads where we have computational scientists appearing in almost every science, whether it's physics or chemistry or material sciences. Here are just a few of the examples that we have here at Lawrence Berkeley alone. And we have, uh, um, let's see, a... Uh, Projects that are looking at combustion, carbon capture sequestration, fusion, uh, solar material designs, and climate modeling. And what I want to do today is talk about how we're doing those kinds of uh, experiments now, computational experiments, and how they relate to the energy crisis. Okay, everyone has heard about the Carbon Cycle 2.0 initiative. Uh, I believe almost all the speakers have touched on this a little bit. Uh, And this is one of the new initiatives at the lab, which is trying to tie together a lot of the energy initiatives that have already been around at the lab under one umbrella called Carbon Cycle 2.0. What I like to talk about is how computing is related to those kinds of activities and where we fit in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about one, each one of these areas. So we're going to get a little sampling, so in addition to your food here, you're also going to get a little sampling of a lot of little buffet uh, items that you may not have chosen well, for yourself, but I'll, I'll just put them out there for your consumption. So climate modeling and energy analysis is the first one. So kind of in a a very cartoon, uh, pictorial kind of a way, Uh, what happens is that we try to model climate modeling by looking at different aspects of the the physical system. So we have to model the ocean, the atmosphere, the land. Uh, And these days, we are even starting to model things like the sea ice and the biogeochemistry in the the earth. And so these, these models have been developed over the last 40 or 50 years, at least computationally. Now, what I find interesting, and you know, if, if you will indulge me for a second, I want to go back in history a little bit to the very first time that these types of models were being developed. And it goes back to these set of equations here. So I, I should have warned you that there were some math equations coming along. So here we are. These are the, called the primitive equations for the atmosphere, and they were first solved by this man here, Louis Fry Richardson. And he managed to solve the set of equations on a map of Europe. And what I find interesting is that he did this essentially by hand, over a period of six weeks while he was driving an ambulance during World War I. So I, I find that, that just incredible. So he was a Quaker and, and obviously a conscientious objector, and, but he still had to do his service, so he drove this ambulance, and in his off time, he solved these equations over a period of six years. Now, what's interesting is that even though these equations were correct, it turns out that they had some numerical problems that we had to then sort of figure out on our own as we start to develop better and more complex models. But today, what I want you to remember is that essentially you don't have to worry about the equations and all those funny symbols and Greek letters and stuff like that. If you just remember conservation of momentum, conservation of mass, conservation of energy, and then an equation of state, these equations essentially are the building blocks, if you will, for a lot of the types of models that we have today. So these are impressive. But what can we actually do with them? Well, the first project that actually looked at this and solved them in time was this. Now, we go back to this picture of this computer, which I showed you a minute ago, which had a whopping 400 operations per second. And they were able to solve this, and this was the first numerical weather forecast of the age back in 1950. So he used the ENIAC, and I forget exactly what it stood for, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and something computing engine, I think. Um, but it was the first multi-purpose electronic digital computer. Now, it took roughly 24 hours to do a 24-hour forecast. So it had, that's an advantage and a disadvantage. The disadvantage, of course, is that it took 24 hours, which is a long time. The advantage is that if you wanted to validate your computer model, all you had to do was stick your head out the window and see if your answer was right or not. So that was kind of nice. We don't have that, that luxury today when we do thousand-year climate simulations. So that was y- yesterday. Today, we have computers like the Cray X-T4 at Franklin, which is one of the computers at the nurse facility. Now, in terms of of what we like to think of, it has roughly on the order of 40,000 compute cores now, uh, which gives us a peak capacity of 356 teraflops. Uh, There will be a new machine coming online, which will be about three times as fast as that shortly. Now, these numbers are very impressive and they, and they mean something to those of us in the field, but a lot of people don't understand exactly what that means. And so what I always like to do is try to put it in terms of what my audience would understand. So if I take a look at the disk space, for example, that this computer has or the storage uh, we have, that translates into 14,000 iPods, 32 gigabyte variety, not just not the 16 gigabyte variety, and 10 Library of Congresses in, in terms of storage. So for those of you that listen to your iPod a lot, this translates into 570 years of listening to your music continuously. Okay, so that's, that's a kind of a, a measure of the kinds of things that we can do. Now, of course, we don't use the Franklin for, looking, for listening to music. Instead, we do simulations like this. So now think back to that six-week calculation. We can do this and simulate the entire globe, and you can start to see fine details like little vortices that are coming through here and hurricanes that are starting to develop. So 25-kilometer resolution. Uh, I believe this was over a period of about four or five months uh, simulation time uh, and ran on about a third of the nurse facility, so roughly about 10,000 processors. So what what we can take from this is that these kinds of simulations allow us to now be able to do what-if scenarios. So as temperatures climbing, for example, what effect will that have on the number of hurricanes in the world? Or perhaps more importantly, what about the severity of the hurricanes? So we have a Hurricane Katrina coming along every five to ten years. Is that going to change? Will it be more or less? Uh, And we're also starting to study things like other extreme events, droughts, uh, heat waves, and other types of, of, of extreme climate events that might be of interest, now doable because you can do a simulation like this and do a bunch of what we call ensemble calculations, just a whole bunch of them together and then try to average out these statistics. Another area is a new project that we started on, which was this, uh, what we call Berkeley Icicles. So if nothing else, we have good acronyms for our projects. Bicycles, which is trying to uh, simulate the movement of the ice sheet. Uh, You probably have heard that there is a lot of concern about the ice sheets melting and what that will do in terms of sea level rise. So it's been estimated that, for example, for the Greenland ice sheet to melt would raise the sea level by approximately seven meters. Now, this particular simulation here is what we're trying to do is on Antarctica. That's a much bigger problem, and if that were to melt, you can see substantially more uh, uh, rise in the sea level. So this is something we've just started. The big issue here is that when you try to model these types of uh, um, models here, that you have to have a very fine resolution. I talked about a 25-kilometer resolution for the ocean uh, in the previous simulation. We need to get down to one kilometer resolution in that. So it's a 25-fold increase, which translates into a very large computational load for any computer. So the idea here is to use better mathematical algorithms to perhaps not have to use as much computational time. Okay, next topic, combustion. So combustion in the U.S. is is roughly dominated by transportation and power plant generation. Eighty-three percent, roughly, of our energy comes from the combustion of uh, fossil fuels. That translates in the U.S., like I said, into transportation power generation, about 40% coal and 40% uh, oil and another 20% natural gas. So what you see here are some predictions on the type of uh, energy use that we will need and the resulting effects on the CO2 in the atmosphere. Figures which I'm sure you've seen before, but it, it lends importance to the fact that we need to find better ways and more efficient ways of doing combustion. So what kinds of things are we doing in this arena? Well, one of the things that people are very interested in is trying to develop uh, more efficient um, combustion processes. So one example of this is a, what's called a low-swirl burner, which was developed here at Berkeley Lab by Dr. Chang, who's in the audience. And uh, one of the things that we were looking at here is to try to find a better way of solving these types of problems so we can predict what's going on in the lab. Well, through a combination of better mathematical structure... Uh, parallel computing, such as the ones that I've shown you already, and the same kinds of equations that I mentioned before, we can get a, an effective resolution now of about 8 billion cells, which means eight, 8 billion, think of this figure as being broken up into 8 billion cells and solving the equations on each one of those. Now, what this does is it captures a cellular structure. Now, what do I mean by that? You see all these little guys in here, they look kind of like cells. Turns out that when you have these premixed uh, turbulent flames, it's very dependent on what that cellular structure looks like. So you can go into the lab, you can try to measure these types of things, but it's a very difficult process. So instead, what we try to do here is to try to simulate this on a computer and then try to draw some sort of quantitative information from that, which we can then go back into the lab and more precisely measure just the quantities we want. So increasing that means that you now have a better system but there's still a lot of challenges. You have have natural flame instabilities and sensitivity to fuel for these types of things, But by using these advanced applied mathematics, you can now come up with simulations such as, oh wait a minute, I think one more thing. I must show you the equations beforehand. So these are the equations beforehand, so that's the last slide of equations. But what I want you to now think about is, remember that I told you it's basically momentum, conservation of momentum, mass, and energy, which we have in an equation of state. So essentially, the same types of systems as we had before. So we can apply a lot of the same technology, a lot of the same mathematics, the computational models, to solve them, and then come up with models like this. So what you're seeing here is now the simulation. So this is a cutoff. There's a line through here. So think of this as a 3 D simulation If we've cut off a corner. And you can see fine details, such as the swirling of the gases down in here. You can start to see a very fine detail of the flame here where it's actually burning. So this is where the red part of it is. And you can see what's happening with the mathematical techniques where you see smooth areas like this we don't have a lot of computational work that's going on in there. And all of it is going on in here, which is where all the action is, and when we can start to finally quantify what's happening. The importance of this is that when you think about how the standard theory works, it doesn't apply in this particular regime, because it's a different kind of combustion processes. So you can't predict what's going to happen. By doing these simulations from first principles, which is what this is doing, What happens is you can now come in here, generate all these simulations, and now you can start to quantify what kinds of effects are going on, why you have combustion in these areas over here, and you can now go back into the lab and do much more detailed observations. So this allows you to now get a much better handle on what's going on and then ask questions like, how can I design a better burner? What's the mixture of the gases that are coming in here? What should the flow rate be? So you can start to now ask a lot of questions and and do them computationally much faster than you could do before. Okay, so even though we're burning carbon, um, combustion through combustion, no matter what happens for the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to be burning these fossil fuels. So we're gonna have carbon coming out. So what we need to do is figure out some way of capturing some of that carbon and then uh, trapping it somewhere or or sequestration to try to put it into areas where we might be able to have it out of the atmosphere. So what do we need here? What we need to do is figure out ways to have the gases coming out of the flue, for example, and try to figure out how to capture just the CO2 coming out of that. So one way of doing this is to uh, develop membranes that capture the CO2 as it's coming through the gas. So this is just a very uh, short cartoon of the types of things that are going on. One material that's been suggested is something called zeolite. It's a very well-known absorbent. And the problem here is that if we will try to do this computationally, it'll take roughly about two to three weeks to do one simulation and there's somewhere on the order of about four or five million structures. Uh, I believe that um, Jeff Long gave a talk on carbon capture and he mentioned these types of materials that they're trying to design. So the goal here is to try to design from scratch new materials that will allow you to very selectively capture the carbon dioxide and do that in such a way that you capture just this carbon dioxide and then you can trap it and move it somewhere else. So all we're doing here is trying to figure out ways of identifying what are the right structures so that you don't have to go look at all five million structures, but maybe only the top 20 that you think are the most promising ones. Having done that, you then try to figure out, I'm going to pump it down on the ground, maybe in a saline formation or some sort of a depleted oil reservoir. And if you do that, you need to figure out how the, how the, um, the carbon dioxide will move through the structure. So here's a kind of a cartoon picture of what a porous structure might look like underground. So it'll be a lot of very complex geometry. There's a lot of geology going on, very uh, uh, almost random uh, structure within the rock. And so what we'll try to do here is try to simulate what would happen as carbon dioxide moves, say, from the left to the right on this particular kind of a rock and see how much of it gets absorbed in the rock. So what you see here now is a simulation of a fluid going from one end to the next and how much is being uh, deposited within, the pore, uh, within uh, inside the pore structure here, okay? The other thing we need to figure out is, will chemistry have any effect on here? As you start to put the, the carbon dioxide in there, it has a lot of very complex geometry, um, chemistry that's going on underground. And so one of the things we wanna do here is to take, take a look at the differences. So before I start this, what you'll see on the top here is what's called non-reacting flow. So the same kind of a picture, but now what's gonna happen is, We're going to solve a set of equations very similar to the ones I've shown you before And then we'll follow how much of it goes through across that uh, part of the, uh, the domain And then we're going to compare that against a reacting flow Where we now allow chemistry to happen in here And try to see which one is the most effective in terms of capturing the carbon dioxide So it starts off about the same Now notice how you start to see a lot more blue over here and a lot less over here Now you've hit the end over here, so you've started to already reach this end over here, whereas it takes a long time, and in fact it may not ever reach this side over here. And so what this is showing is that you really have to be careful about how you model these types of uh, systems because you may think that you can sequester all the carbon dioxide, but in fact you may not be able to because of the reactions that are going on in the ground. Okay, solar photovoltaics. So if we... Think about it now. So that that takes care of the carbon or the fossil fuel uh, combustion. What about other uh, avenues for renewable energy? Say something that's more carbon neutral. So one uh, opportunity is uh, solar cells. And so people have been thinking about trying to design solar cells that will allow us to generate electricity from them. And the reason is quite easy. You've seen this picture before. The global annual solar resource is on the order of about almost 10 to the 9 terawatt hours. And the whole world is using on the order of about 10 to the fourth terawatt hours. So, if we could capture that and convert it into electricity, we would be able to use everything we would ever need. So, I have to give you a short lesson on how a solar solar photovoltaic cell, or say a solar cell works, and then I'll uh, give you one inkling of what kinds of uh, projects we're working on to try to develop better solar cells. So, solar cells based on inorganic nanorods have been proposed as one way of developing new, more efficient solar cells the nanorods act a little bit like wires. They absorb light, and they generate these what are called hole-electron pairs. So what happens is you you have a material in the middle here, sunlight hits it, and then you create an an electron in a hole, which is what causes the electricity. Now, the biggest challenge is that most of the materials that have been used for designing solar cells, the cost is still way above the range of what you would get from, say, coal. So closer to 30 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, this is a little bit of a cartoon I came up with to try to explain how this this stuff works. A single band material, so think of just a single single material you're going to use, has a theoretical efficiency of around 30%. And the reason is very simple. Let's suppose electrons live here in this energy state, and you have another energy state up here. And if you can get that electron to come up to that level there, then you'll get electricity. So a photon will hit this electron. And if it bounces up there with just the right energy, it'll stay up there and it'll start to flow. But if you don't have enough energy, it'll just bounce up and then come back up. Well, not quite, but you get the picture. So the point here is that not all light is created equal. Some of it will cause the electrons to jump up there, but not all of them will. And that gives you the 30% efficiency. Okay? So the idea is, what if we use several different types of materials In fact, a material that perhaps creates a a secondary energy level here, which we can use as a stepping stone, or the electrons will use as a stepping stone. And so now when light hits it, it can bump up there for a little while, and then get hit again, and then go up, thereby increasing the efficiency of the solar cell. So one proposed material is to have zinc telluride with just a small fraction of oxygen. And then the question that was asked is, okay, if you're gonna design this material One, is there really a gap? In other words, do you really create that energy level there? And if so, what's the right mix of oxygen to put in there? So it's sort of like baking a cake, if you will, and you have to have just the right set of cooking ingredients, otherwise you're not gonna get the right right set of cakes. So the question came to us, now here's a more scientific version of that. Still the same picture, you have an energy band over here. You wanna create another energy band here. There's a conduction band. And so it turns out that you can Formulate this as a uh, problem in electronic structure calculation, which basically just says, let's try to figure out what this structure looks like and see if we can create that band that does exactly like what I pictured before. And in fact, you can. There is a code that we developed that developed that. And the way to interpret this is that now this is what's called a density of states, this is where electrons will live. And this picture here is the new band gap or the new energy state that was created by adding 3% oxygen. So again, just to drive the point home, one way of doing this is to go into the lab, manufacture lots of different variations, 1%, 2%, 3%, 3 3.5%, and see which one works best. Or you can put this on a computer and then solve it and see if you get that kind of a uh, picture or not. Now, why wasn't this done before? The reason it wasn't done before is because these kinds of calculations take hours and hours, actually months of time to come up with these kinds of calculations. So a team of us got together and decided to come up with a linear scaling version, a much faster algorithm, which allowed us to do this calculation with 3% oxygen alloy on a 3,500 atom system on about one hour using 17,000 cores. A similar calculation with previous kinds of codes would have taken closer to about six months or so. So that gives you the sort of gives you the the power of of mathematics and algorithms. Uh, In fact, this won the ACM Gordon Bell Award in 2008 for algorithm innovation, for being able to do these kinds of calculations now on a routine basis. Okay, the last topic I wanna talk about is renewable energy, and in this particular case, wind, because I know that somebody talked about solar wind two weeks ago. And so one of the things that we're also looking at for renewable energy is is the uh, capacity from wind. And so one new approach is to try to develop new uh, windmills. Okay, should I have given you a hint here? So these kinds of winds if, if, I'm sorry, windmills here uh, have these blades that are going around like that. So now think about looking at it from the top. So you'll see just a blade. And this is what you're seeing here. These little blades as they go along in here. Now, what you're seeing here is the um, turbulence, if you will, as these blades go along their path. And one of the things we want to try to do is develop very accurate methods for trying to solve these simulations because trying to understand how the shape and the design uh, of these blades here will affect the efficiency of the windmills, thereby driving the cost down if you could do that. Now that that, uh, requires a lot of very high fidelity predictions, very high order methods, no equations, but just the point being here again that you can simulate these things now on a computer in 2D and be able to get very, very good predictions of the kinds of uh, wind flow and shear that are coming out of these blades. Uh, this is work that's due to a parallel person who is a professor down on campus and also a joint appointment here at the, at the lab. All right, so my point then through this talk was is that there's a lot of um, energy uh, problems that we are facing today. There are a lot of different uh, initiatives. There uh, combustion, carbon capture, climate modeling, I didn't talk about some of the other ones. But in essence, a lot of them use computation, modeling, and simulation. And this is where now with the capacity of the new computers, the new algorithms, we're now able to develop models that can predict new scenarios and allows us to do what-if scenarios. So just to summarize, there's a lot of energy challenges that are facing us. Computational sciences, I believe, is a critical element of all the solutions that we have here. And I think this is just the beginning. If I take a look at, at what the kinds of computers that we're looking at in the future that will have a 1,000 or even a million times more capability and the new algorithms that, that are being developed, I think we'll be able to solve problems that are much, much, much more complex and much more exciting. So with that, I'll stop, and thank you very much for your time.